We're going to continue with our series that is titled Ascend, and we'll go again into Ephesians chapter 4 today. In the last three weeks, we've been looking at the gifts that Christ left behind in his ascension. We are the hands and feet of Christ, and these five gifts are the ways Jesus continues to operate through those hands and feet. We've seen over the last three weeks that Jesus is the embodiment of these five gifts, holding these ministry expressions together in perfect tension and setting the benchmark for their use in the church. We've looked carefully at the work of Christ as teacher and shepherd. And last week on Pentecost Sunday, we explored the gift of the evangelist. If Jesus sets the bar for what that looks like, then we can only conclude that this was a dynamic, dangerous, and exciting ministry for the church to lean into. The gospel of the kingdom challenges us internally about our own religiosity, about the way we become aloof from the world in our religious bubbles, and how we look a little too inward at times when a white harvest is still to be reaped. And it challenges Caesar and Babylon. The views of the world already have what they believe to be glad tidings. They have a selection, a buffet, of gospels. In their extremes, they look like an atheistic utopia and self-deification to the left and unquestioning patriotism and the pursuit of the great Australian dream to the right. More simplistically put, we have a gospel according to the ABC narrative on one side and the gospel according to the Sky News narrative on the other. And then we have the gospel of the kingdom which exposes all of these other things for the idolatry that it is. The ascension gift of the evangelist speaks into all of those things, and it ensures our gospel has an active voice and a sense of vitality in the church and in the world. It sets radical cultures in the church, and it affects entire communities. Now, these three are the easy ones to explore. It's time to go into something a little more challenging, particularly as I present it to a mixed audience with various backgrounds and experiences. Uh, We're going to go back to our key passage today, and uh, we're going to read that now, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Today we're going to explore the ascension gift of the prophet. And I'm going to do this with the understanding that um, with our online audience, there's a a whole new audience in play here. It's a different scene for us. Um, And so uh, I really... uh, want to go over some basic ground here as we do this. This will set some good groundwork for both now and for the gift that we'll look at next week. I want to offer a quick glossary of terms here. Uh, The first, uh, just two words. Uh, The first one is the word cessationism. Uh, This is a doctrinal position uh, when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, A cessationist is someone who has deeply and prayerfully studied the scriptures and has concluded that certain elements of the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament are not present or even or required in today's church. These elements can be summed up as charismatic gifts. The other stance is this uh, position called continuationism or continualism. A continuationist is someone who has deeply and prayerfully studied the scriptures and has reached the opposite conclusion. 
that these elements are very much present and required. And uh, I will first note that there is a firm agreement on both sides of this theological discussion. I won't call it an argument. I will call it a discussion. Both sides of this discussion firmly believe in the person and even the present-day activity of the Holy Spirit. Uh, They both hold to core beliefs about the role of the Spirit in our salvation. Uh, Galatians, for example, describes conversion as receiving the Spirit. Uh, In Ephesians, the Spirit is the deposit of our hope to come. Uh, He's all over our salvation and transformational journey in Christ. Both sides of the discussion agree that the Holy Spirit is a person as opposed to some other energy or force. And both sides agree on the complete divinity of the Holy Spirit as well. We have uh, really solid common ground. Uh, When it comes to the oneness of the faith that Paul wrote of earlier, the person and the satirical work of the Spirit, the work in our salvation, is very much part of that non-negotiable faith. But our camps part ways with the elements we see from Acts 2 onwards, where Luke records the events of Pentecost and beyond. Nobody denies what happens at the time, the tongues, the prophecy, the miracles, the healings, all that stuff. But the cessationists believe that this was only for a strategic time, the apostolic age of the church. In their view, it's for scripture to be written and for the church to be established, and that's roughly about it. The continuationist, on the other hand, obviously holds the opposite view. In order for me to continue to expound on this passage uh, with a view to seeing the church mobilized and running on all, well, five cylinders, I can only do so from a continuationist perspective. If the prophet and the apostle are done and dusted, then there's no point exploring them other than confining to history and and telling you to leave them all alone. However, I don't believe the apostolic ministry gift or the prophetic gift have ceased. I don't think we're anywhere near that place where prophetic or apostolic building up is no longer necessary. Instead, I firmly believe that there is building and ministry that apostolic and prophetic leaders can do in today's church. I also believe that suitably gifted people do in fact exist in our midst to do that. So let's explore the prophetic gift by looking at how Jesus sets the standard. This should be an easy thing to see here, uh, since he was a true insider to the workings of God and of course was God. His earthly expression um, would indeed be a prophetic one. The theologian Walter Brueggemann calls him the fulfillment and quintessence of the prophetic tradition. It's clear the disciples believed in him as a prophet. Deuteronomy 18 tells of a prophet like Moses who was still to come. And we know the first century Jews were still looking for him. They grilled John the Baptist about this very thing. And they correctly surmised that Jesus was that prophet after he fed the 5,000. In Acts 3.22, we read that Peter confirms this to be the case. When we look at Luke's gospel, we read that Jesus introduces his ministry in a prophetic fashion. Uh, Let me show that to you now out of Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21. It says this, He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. 
The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus opens his ministry by engaging with Isaiah 61 and points to himself as its fulfillment. And then in the verses after, describes himself as a prophet, albeit one without honor in his own hometown. And in doing so in this manner, he shows us in part what a prophetic ministry in Christ would look like. One of the roles of a prophet would be to call the church to practice justice, something the Old Testament prophets did a lot. In other parts of the Gospels, we see the prophetic ministry of Christ expressed in loads of ways. The very first evangelistic message had a prophetic tone in its calls to repentance. Again, this was a common message of uh, uh, what the Old Testament prophets did. Uh, Think uh, Jonah, for example. Uh, We see the covenant relationship between God and man being reframed and restated in various ways. Uh, I contend that the Sermon on the Mount is a prophetic statement. We see future hope and future events being foretold. We see judgments spoken of and pointed to in statements of warning. And we see moments of specific clarity in times where Jesus would know the very inner workings of of his audience and he would call it out in a manner that would call them to address it. The woman at the well is one of those classic examples. In Jesus, we see upward and outward expression of prophetic ministry. In an upward fashion, we see Jesus make everything about the Father. Even as the equal son, he is calling those around him to look up. And in looking up, we're shown that this positions us not just to speak, but also to listen. I would put to you this morning that if you've ever been taught how to incline your ear to the Lord and be positioned to hear and obey, then someone with a prophetic gift taught you how to do that. And Jesus shows us in his prophetic ministry how this engages with the very pathos of God. Through the prophet, we are reminded of God's love and mercy and compassion and justice and anger and jealousy and joy and grief, not just because the words of of, uh, on paper of Scripture say so, but they've experienced God in such a way that they know this deeply to be true. This experiential part feeds into another point here. The prophet, as Jesus shows us, facilitates the arena where others actually encounter God. Yes, the revelation of Scripture shows us God in this way, and this is powerful and, well, enough. Uh, No more Scripture is there to be written, I fully believe this. If a whole new epistle or gospel or apocalyptic piece were to emerge now, uh, uh, I'd be really dismissive of it. But God in his grace offers encounter as well. I would argue that the day of Pentecost is proof that this is true. And then an outward expression of this ministry would emerge from all this. The calls to repentance, the calls to justice, the calls to holiness, and the calling out of leadership. The reminders of covenant, the warnings of future things. Things delivered not by flesh and anger, but by the Spirit of God in love, truth, and power. All up, if we want to know what a model of New Testament prophetic ministry looks like, then like the three previous ministry gifts we've explored, we see the fullness of this ministry in Jesus. And then we see it active in the New Testament church. The prophetic begins at Pentecost with the wonders of God being proclaimed. We see the prophetic call to repent and believe being echoed early in the peace and a congregation of 3,000 people emerge. 
We see truth spoken to power. We see social justice in fervent action. We see multiple encounters with God. We see the deepest motives of people being revealed through the Spirit. And we see examples of future warning in play as well. Acts 11 tells us a prophet named Agabus pointed to a coming famine. And in response, the church in Antioch pulled an offering to anticipate what was to come. It would be a pretty compelling prediction to get that sort of action in response, right? Every part of the early Christian church in Scripture has a prophetic edge to it. And nothing in the writings of the apostles prescribe or indicate any form of winding it down. Instead, we see instructions, checks and balances for how the gift is to be used. In addition to the Ephesians, two other churches are told of this gift and how it works. It's an active spiritual gift endorsed by Paul in Romans 12 to a church that none of the apostles are credited with planting. And we see that the prophets naturally rose up in their midst anyway. And it is taught on strongly in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 and 14. In chapter 12, we see Paul laying out a big list of spiritual gifts with the understanding that in the hands of the Corinthian church, they were like new toys to kids too young to use them properly. (laughs) He understands that congregation well. And he says this, you used to have silent idols and now you have a God who engages with you and offers the power of encounter through the Spirit. But these are given according to the sovereign will of God and not something to be used in frivolous ways or to exert power over others. So he calls them back to, uh, in chapter 13, to love. And he talks about that being the highest and most powerful expression of the church, not the spiritual gifts. And then comes back to this topic in chapter 14. Let me read out some stuff from here at this time. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, particularly prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to a people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They are the mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. Of all the spiritual gifts, the one that matters most, at least in this epistle, is what? Prophecy. Because it strengthens, encourages, and comforts. It builds up the church, it captures and proclaims the heart of God, and it keeps us focused on what matters most to Him. It reminds us of justice. It calls us to repent. It it drives the heart of lament. It's the much-needed gift that speaks into the crisis of COVID. It's the gift that needs to be the loudest on the streets of many burning cities in, in the United States. It's the highest of the spiritual, the charismatic gifts, because it's the one that Jesus embodied the most. It must continue. I've heard cessationist preachers say recently that the church isn't called to repent enough. And I say in response that it won't so long as you suppress the prophets. But there are also checks and balances in all this. And I think this is where the church can navigate away similar to the pattern of the other gifts so far. We have teachers, but we're all called to teach. We have shepherds, but we're all called to pastor. We have evangelists, but we're all called to herald. We have prophets, those apportioned more. And we have the ongoing ministry of prophecy. I see this delineation later in chapter 14. Uh, Let's just read this, uh, 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 verses 29 to 33. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop, 
for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Prophecy comes in a sense of order, not chaos. It's prevalent, it's permitted, it appears to be quite open for participation. But it has accountability as well. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. If it gets chaotic, if it gets away from God's script, then the ascension gift of the prophet reels it in. I see this in play in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 as well, verses 19 to 22. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Again, prophecies serve a purpose and must not be thrown out. However, they can most certainly be tested. We work to the understanding that if God speaks, he gets it right 100% of the time. But as students of Christ and not in the Master, we might miss the brief at times. Or worse, as I've encountered in months gone by, we can go into business for ourselves. Uh, I've actually had uh, self-promoting prophets knock on the church door from time to time, had phone calls, had letters, uh, uh, people rocking up on Sunday mornings, no accountable nature to any of them. There's been nobody in their life to test or develop them. And I've encountered outrage at the idea that this is to be the case when challenged about it. I'd say with a fair bit of certainty that these people are actually not prophets. They're having a go, but they're in chaos, not order. And as such, they need to be rejected. We're warned of false prophets in Scripture. And these sorts of people who rock up on our doorstep usually fit the bill. But at the same time, I believe prophecy is still a necessary ministry in the skill set of the modern church because the gift in the way Jesus embodied it needs to be in action in today's church and the world around us. If we reject prophecy outright, with it we end up rejecting other things too. If we reject prophecy outright, with it we end up rejecting other things too. And if we reject those things, justice, mercy, compassion, repentance, truth, the power, active encounters with Jesus, all these things will at best be greatly diminished in our midst. At worst, they'll be gone for good. So at this time, I'm calling for the prophets to stand up. The church needs you. The city needs you. We need to be in a place where we can gather those apportioned more. We need to permit ourselves to seek the heart and the voice of God for the church. And we need to do this the way Paul says to, in an ordered and accountable fashion. 